And that is how he scientifically decrees that Blanche Levy was killed by a fatal dose of strychnine. We found the evidence of it in her stomach. And then, of course, the problem from there becomes how and why did this fatal dose of poison end up in the stomach of a two-year-old child? From the University of Kentucky, this is Long Story Short, a brief history of history. I'm your host, Cody Foster. It's 1863, and a chemist has just received the stomach of a toddler who died mysteriously in Louisville, Kentucky. He withdraws the stomach contents and finds traces of strychnine, a deadly poison. To further verify this discovery, he takes out tiny pieces of the stomach contents and he feeds it to a frog. And guess what happens? The frog dies. Immediately. The small child, Blanche Levy, died from asphyxiation by consuming the strychnine poisoning. The question is, was she murdered? Without even considering the possibility of this being an accident, the Levy family turn on their servant, a fugitive slave by the name of Caroline. She was arrested, charged with murder, convicted of infanticide by an all-white jury, and sentenced to hang from the neck until dead. But the evidence for the crime is thin and circumstantial. Blanche's father, Willis Levy, was hated by most of his neighbors. He bought strychnine in unusually large quantities and used it to kill nuisance animals around his farm. He also spread it around his neighbors' yards, without their permission, using enough to, quote, kill a regiment of men. Now, there's no doubt that his use of this poison was careless. He left pieces of meat covered in the strychnine around his yard where his toddler played. The toddler's name, of course, is Blanche. But he wasn't around when she died. He was on a business trip in Tennessee. On the day that Blanche died, her mother, Annie Levy, had left her daughter in the care of Caroline so that she could lie down to recover from feeling ill. Soon, though, Caroline burst into her bedroom, declaring that Blanche was convulsing and frothing at the mouth. They both rushed to the toddler, who was found dead some three feet from the kitchen door. Three feet from the room where, you guessed it, Willis stored the massive quantities of strychnine. To find out more about Caroline and the Levy family, I went to the Kentucky Historical Society to speak with several historians who are currently working on the Civil War Governors of Kentucky Digital Documentary Edition project. You know, we actually get a pretty fascinating look into an urban uh, household in Louisville through this case. Uh, you know, the murder That's Dr. Patrick Lewis. He is overseeing so all of this project. So Willis Levy, the, the, the man of the house and the, the, the father of Blanche, uh, has decided to, to buy some strychnine to poison some uh, vermin that had been in and around his house. So this is something that you could potentially go to the store or some sort of supplier and they would have, mm -hmm. would it be labeled strychnine? Would oh, it absolutely. Called? Okay. Yes, yes. Uh, and, you know, it probably gone to a, a pharmacist, maybe even the same person who performed this, uh, this medical experiment okay. uh, on, uh, on, with the frogs. We don't know. Uh, but right, uh, so goes into town. And, and decides to spread this poison out in his yard because there had been uh, some, some dogs and cats and rats and other things that he didn't quite like in, in his yard. And we know this happened. This is part we know of the this court happened. record this, that he spreads poison in the yard. This enters into evidence, okay. right. And so he, he does in a number of different ways. 
Uh, he, he mixes it with grain so that, uh, so that birds will pick it up. He mixes it with uh, cubes of beef so that rats and dogs and cats might pick it up. Um, and, and in fact, a lot of his neighbors are pretty uncomfortable with the idea that he's just spreading large amounts of, uh, of poison around the yard because they have animals and small children who are living in the same vicinity as well. From that perspective, is it surprising that there is poison around in the yard that, uh, that Blanche may have picked up? No, absolutely not. So I'm the investigator. I walk out of the yard. I see that there's this poison on the ground, and I immediately say, uh, Caroline isn't the only suspect anymore. Mr. Levy is a suspect. Uh, did they do that? We're honestly not sure quite how that part of the story played out. Our documents That's Dr. Matthew Holbert. He's an assistant editor on this project. Court documents unfortunately have a few gaps in them, but this does go back to the point that is Le has Levy essentially poisoned his own daughter and then sort of just points at Caroline when the detectives show up. He's actually not home when she dies. He's, uh, he's a ferry boat pilot. How convenient. So he, he comes back and essentially finds out that she's died, and when he finds out that she's been poisoned by strychnine, he knows he's sprinkled it all over the yard. So, of course, his first inclination is going to be, well, clearly my slave did it because she didn't like me and she didn't want to be my slave anymore. Legally speaking, the most interesting thing about this case and what we got some of the most feedback from the blog series has been, it's one of those interesting instances where everything seems so stacked towards Caroline's innocence Levy's a jerk, he's poisoning the neighbor's dogs, they're worried about him killing their kids, he's verbally abusive and threatens to be physically abusive. Everything points to you wanting Willis to have been the one that's responsible for it, but there's always this really small possibility that despite this mountain of sort of emotional outpouring that you might have, Caroline might have been the one that did it. We will just honestly never know because the record doesn't allow us to. How did we find this story in the first place? We came across Caroline in the Kentucky Department for Libraries and Archives, the State Archives in Frankfurt. We we're going through them as part of a project uh, which is uh, going to digitize every piece of paper that crossed uh, the desk of one of the governors of Kentucky from uh, 1860 to 1865, including uh, three Union governors and two Confederate governors. Caroline is this fantastic case uh, that illustrates uh, how deep and rich a collection this can be, going far beyond uh, the limits of, uh, of, of class and race and, uh, uh, and those sorts of things to tell us something uh, new about the Civil War era. And we are in the age of the Civil War, which means we're dealing with a lot of goods, the movement of goods, the transport of goods. And of course, goods meaning tobacco, goods meaning alcohol, goods meaning munitions, and goods meaning people. So how does Caroline fit into this narrative of the movement of people into Kentucky. She's defined by movement and by uncertainty uh, that that movement creates. She's born in Tennessee um, and enslaved in Tennessee. We're not precisely sure where, uh, but she's followed the Union Army as it's, uh, as it's moved north, chasing uh, an invading Confederate Army into Kentucky in the fall of 1862. Louisville in particularly is, the, is a very much an international city. Immigrants. That's Tony Curtis. He's an assistant editor on this project. It's a hub of military activity. It's a hub of immigration into the city, Louisville being the primary economic center because of rivers, because of rail, uh, very much representative. Uh, the, the economy is representative of the highly diversified agricultural society that Kentucky is, the Upper South is. 
refugees are also coming to the to the city. Uh, they're following Buell's army from t- Tennessee into Kentucky, specifically into uh, Louisville, and you see refugee communities being formed that are su- first supported by the military and some local benevolent organizations uh, and businesses in Louisville, but later on supported by uh, northern uh, uh, organizations who are investing and in helping to maintain and sustain refugee communities. They're coming into Louisville, and this is the Louisville that Caroline comes to in the fall of 1862. So this is a Louisville that is, you know, engaging in this wartime atmosphere, and we're seeing, as I said earlier, the movement of goods, but there's also something else that seems to be really dark about the story, something that borders more on uh, illegal activities, and that's contraband. What is contraband in this period, and how is that affecting Louisville and, you know, slaves and African Americans and even the white elite, the governors themselves? What is contraband specifically? So contraband in the context of slavery and in the context of the 1862 uh, Kentucky campaign means slaves which had been owned by rebel masters and owned in rebel states. As, as a preliminary uh, move moving towards the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, Lincoln and, and the Congress had passed uh, two confiscation acts uh, which defined slaves as materials of war uh, that the rebels used and which could therefore be confiscated and appropriated to the use uh, of the Union Army. So just in the same way as the Union Army would have no hesitation in capturing cannon and horses uh, and uniforms and denying those to the rebel uh, armies and in fact using some of them themselves, uh, the same logic was applied to slavery. Now this gets tricky in Kentucky. Uh, because Kentucky is a loyal slave state. It had not seceded. And so uh, the confiscation acts which apply to uh, rebel states such as Tennessee, where Caroline is from, uh, don't hold the same water in Kentucky. Now this gets complicated when we see this flood of refugees, right? Because uh, uh, what the the confiscation acts and then eventually the preliminary emancipation proclamation will do uh, for African Americans throughout the South is, uh, is to tell them by default that Freedom is with the Union Army, and if you can find the Union Army uh, and leave your plantation where you had been enslaved, uh, chances are that that eventually uh, full freedom is going to come your way one way or the other. So to clarify Caroline's status as she's moving with this um, army, is she a runaway? Is she a refugee? Is she contraband? She's all of those things. Uh, is what makes her so vulnerable and what puts her in this position uh, where she gets caught up uh, in in the legal system and eventually uh, put into our documentary record. So what we're really seeing in the story so far is three levels. You've got the national level where you've got the North and the South are really fighting it out, this grand story, this grand narrative of the Civil War that we're all so familiar with. You've got this middle level where you've got Kentucky as a transition state. It's getting involved in the war itself, but is it slave? You know, pro-slave? Is it against it? Uh, what's it mean for people who are arriving there? What's it mean for the transportation of goods, etc.? And then at the very bottom, from the bottom up, you've got Caroline, and Caroline isn't uh, a unique story per se. This might be happening to other people, but Caroline is giving us insights into a broader history of. Louisville, a broader history of Kentucky, and within the national narrative itself. Who is 
Caroline? Who is this person who, you know, we're trying to dive into her life and dive into her world. What was she like? Who is she? Well, part of the problem with identifying who Caroline is 150 years later is that it would have been equally difficult for an outsider to the story to have identified who Caroline was if you had been there in the moment in the courtroom. We know Caroline is a slave swept from Tennessee. We don't know what her actual name was. The name of her former master in Tennessee is applied to her. She's Caroline Dennant in some legal documents and others. She's only Caroline the slave or Caroline a slave. We have a rough idea that she's in her late teens or her early 20s. She has what is referred to as her husband uh, living somewhere nearby in the city. We don't know if they're formally married. They're allowed to live together sometimes. Her temporary owners, and to be honest, we're not particularly sure what to call them either, sometimes allow him to spend the night, uh, and other times they don't. Without knowing who actually owned her, no one does come to claim her during her sort of interim fugitive period where her, even though she's brought up with the Union Army, her owner can still come from Tennessee to claim her because Tennessee is not ready to just shed this relationship with the slave South yet. So I think that the most compelling answer to your question is not just that we don't know, it's that the people in the courtroom at the time really had no idea who this woman was either. And they are putting the ultimate form of judgment upon her. She's on trial for her life and they really have no idea who she is and they're not really equipped to find out who she is because frankly, she's a random black woman who was enslaved in Tennessee and most of them don't care. Women of the time period, particularly black women of the time period who were enslaved, had very little identity, if any, outside of the reference point or connection to slavery and their enslavers. It's very hard to have an independent identity. What you're actually seeing is that the only way we give people identities is through the record. That's Dr. Amanda Higgins. She's currently the associate editor of the Register of the Kentucky Historical Society. Caroline always had an identity. She was always a person. But because of how laws were made, because of how records were collected, we have lost her identity and only feel comfortable in giving her one when she interacts with a record that um, we deem legitimate. And I think that that's what makes this story particularly complex and fascinating is that both works against her in the courtroom because because uh, when when the crime and the, or the, the, the death of, uh, of the infant, um, Levy, we're not going to call that a crime necessarily, um, you know, when Caroline finds herself in this legal situation and in this courtroom, people can read assumptions on her. Black women kill infants. Black women poison uh, members of the family. They are just known to have done this, and everybody presumes this. At the same time, uh, you know, you, you talk about these tropes of being uh, simple and sympathetic. The, the trope of motherhood is being used by the people who are getting up this petition campaign to have her sentence remitted in her pardon. Um, you know, so it works both for her and against her, but. Ultimately, what we're seeing is a bunch of white people not particularly taking the time to know Caroline, but to read their own assumptions onto her. And that's a broader narrative for this time period anyway. I mean, there is constant resistance to um, these people, not just to Caroline itself, but to African-Americans, to slaves in particular. In what way did enslaved peoples find some level of control and engage in resistance? Resistance to slavery by slaves themselves uh, 
it's going to take on many forms. And the thing that most of us immediately think of, or the question that just jumps to your head is, why don't they revolt? Slaves typically, especially in the Deep South, outnumber uh, their white owners and overseers. Uh, but that is a logistical nightmare. So what you see in Haiti or Saint-Domingue does not happen all that frequently. They're just too hard. They're too hard to pull off. The deeper into the Deep South that you are, the harder it is for you to have somewhere to go. We all think, why don't they just grab their shovels, their weapons, steal some guns, kill all the white people and go. But everybody stops short of that ellipses. Where are you actually going? If you're in Georgia, you're not going to South Carolina because they're just waiting to scoop you up with guns. So you really have nowhere to go. That's the first reason. The second reason it's so difficult is because you have to keep everyone, all of your co-conspirators, just in lockstep. Because if there are 20 of us planning this revolt, it only takes one saying, ooh, I don't know if this is gonna work, but if I'm the one that tattles, you're all gonna get killed, but not me. I'm gonna get rewarded. Slaves are always in the middle of a balancing act. So on one hand, you learn to resist in a way that helps raise your spirit or helps make daily life more tolerable. So maybe you break tools or you flip the master off when he turns around or you steal some extra ham. Maybe you make off for the afternoon with a bottle of whiskey. You know you're going to get punished for those things if you get caught, but it's not going to be sort of utter mortal punishment. Uh, on the other hand, you also learn to accommodate the institution and instances where you are avoiding catastrophic harm to yourself. So breaking a tool and slowing down production, thinking, well, one day that's gonna cost my owner money, is very different than hitting him in the face with the shovel. Because if you do that, you're dead. Now, Caroline's an interesting case because her gender gives her domestic duties. She works in the household. We don't know what she actually did on the plantation, but we know with the Levy family, she is predominantly a cook and a nanny. Uh, this might seem strange to people who aren't familiar with slavery. You own someone, you know that person hates you, so what do you do? You let them make your food and take care of your infant. You've put Caroline in this interesting position where she fixes your food and she has direct private access to your child. Aside from revolt, the two greatest fears of white slaveholders are being poisoned by their slaves or their children being killed by their slaves. So they're kind of creating this arrangement but they don't see a big problem with it. She's not just poisoning her white owners. She, well, she's not just accused of doing that. She's accused of poisoning their child. So this is sort of the double whammy of great fears to begin with. But the most important thing is that when she walks into that courtroom in 1862, even though Kentucky's a border state, and even though it's loyal to the Union, it's pro-Southern and it's pro-slavery, and all of that cultural baggage comes right through those doors with her. There is no avoiding those stereotypes for her. So the case for her defense or the idea that she is innocent until proven guilty, it's just non-existent. It does not come with her. And so the way they're perceiving her, the moment she walks in the door and immediately this white crowd is already making judgments about her. And what's the most basic thing we do as humans when we're communicating with each other? Facial expressions. If I see you smile, I know you're happy. If I see tears, I know you're sad. I make judgments based on who you are without even knowing you, just based on those expressions. And that's something that they're doing in the courtroom too, right? What kind of assumptions are they making about her just based on her physical presence, her facial expressions? Well, the prosecution's case relies at least in part on Caroline's behavior entered as evidence. That's Whitney Smith. She's an assistant editor on this project. So 
it's hard. Particularly her smile. It's mentioned several times in the partial transcript we have that she was seen to look at the child and smile. And it says this was an evidence. We don't know who the witnesses are that are testifying to this evidence, who's seen her smile. So it's hard to know what their motivation could be. Um, and again, we only have partial transcri transcripts of the trial. So we can just guess as to what how they're interpreting it. But since she was convicted, it seems safe to say they were reading that as guilt and that her smile was an indication of her happiness that the child had died or her success in accomplishing the murder or the revenge that she felt. But it could just as easily be flipped and read as mourning her fondness for the child. Um, it is also entered into the testimony that she had affection for the child and cared for her. So it could just as easily be read as fond memories of a child that she loved. Um, and as Matt mentioned, she Caroline has to contend with the specter of the female as poisoner, which whether true or false doesn't matter. She's still a suspect and is carrying that cultural burden into the court with her. So every her every action and expression is going to be filtered through that interpretation. But it seems to me that these cultural misperceptions, um, I mean, are just there's so much bias in them. You can't actually get at what the who the person actually is. Um, what they're feeling, more specifically, whether they killed a child or not, just based on these facial expressions. So, I mean, how might these people have misread Caroline's face? Part of the evidence of the prosecution is Caroline's concern of the body. Um, and in traditional West African traditions, funerals are very important. It's a coming together of community and sort of solidifying your place in this world and the next. And so what might seem odd to them is for her very important and caring for the body is also a gendered task and it would have been her responsibility as a female, particularly as a domestic servant, to perform these tasks. So she naturally has more of a connection to this child, regardless of whether she did it or not. Right. She feels She feels the responsibility to take care of the child in life and in death. Um, that's consistent with her, her likely religious practice. Her concern for the autopsy could be read and maybe is read as concern that her act of poison will be found out, but it could also be read as to her that's a sacrilege to desecrate the body. So she She's, could be protecting the child. I mean, you're right. It could go one or two ways. One is, hey, I really don't want them to find out that I poisoned this child. And on the other hand, I'm protecting this body from being violated. Um, through medical practices and science and all of this. This is a very sacred item that I feel like I need to protect. It's no wonder that there was such, um, at least today, such turmoil over whether she did it or didn't do it. It's easy to point the finger at the black woman. All fingers in the courtroom are surely pointing to Caroline, whether the odds are stacked against her, whether people you know, are uh, are unsure whether she did it. It seems to be the most reasonable person to blame here. What is her? How does her gender play into this? Caroline's intersectional identity as a black woman at a time when um, citizenship and and belonging is very fluid makes her story even more complicated. Um, as an enslaved person in an urban environment she works in the household she's expected to do to have certain duties as a household um, slave but she's still denied womanhood because she's african-american some of what is so fascinating about this is the role of gender within the levy household and within the larger court system we have a couple of we have female voices in a time when it's 
difficult to find non-elite, non-white voices. Um, so you have Caroline's petition, which is being, she you have her mark, she signs that this is what she's saying. Um, so we can infer that she was involved in this process. Um, you have Annie Levy, the mother of Blanche, who is saying, no, <laughs> what Caroline's saying is wrong. This is what happened. Um, I was tired. Caroline tried to pour me coffee. She never does that. So look, not only did she get my daughter, she was trying to get me. And then you have Josephine Lynch, who is Annie Levy's sister and their neighbor. And her testimony is really compelling she saw Willis Levy spreading strychnine about and that she is concerned for the safety of her children. In fact, she says, I have been very uneasy many, many a time for fear that my children would get some of the poison. She is providing evidence to help an enslaved woman of color. This is a white woman doing that. That's, you know, not something that you would expect to find in a record of a border state. Then you get the other part of this where she, her testimony has to be corroborated by two men when that evidence comes out. Yes. She doesn't deliver that evidence at the initial trial in, uh, in May of 1863, uh, but she will deliver that evidence in the form of an affidavit when the petition is being made to the governor for Caroline's pardon later in August and September. So the question is why she didn't feel comfortable delivering that testimony at the public trial. So we've got these perspectives in the Levy household. We've got who they are, and we've got Caroline herself. Um, tell me about Caroline's husband. We spoke about we spoke about him earlier in this episode, and then he kind of just faded away. But does he exist? Who is he? Where is he? Caroline's husband comes in, and he's only mentioned very obliquely, uh, not to illustrate anything about himself, but to illustrate the tense relationship that Caroline had with the Levy household. At one point, we learned during a piece of the testimony that uh, Caroline and her husband, uh, who lived nearby but often stayed uh, overnight with Caroline in the Levy household. Annie Levy had gotten on to Caroline for burning too many candles uh, when they sat up at night. Uh, so, the, so we know nothing more about this man than that. Did he follow Caroline from Tennessee? Had they been married there as slaves? Were their marriages legal? The answer to that question is no. Um, and, or had she met him uh, on the road? Was, was he a fellow contraband from Tennessee that they had met on the way up to Louisville? Did she meet him in Louisville? Uh, was he from Kentucky? Was he from Tennessee? Was he from another state entirely? Could he have joined uh, this, this Union Army procession moving north from Alabama or Mississippi? Any of those things are likely. So this is also a project about the governor. What role does the governor play in this case? Um, well, we see a couple petitions from Caroline and her supporters going to the governor. And in Civil War Kentucky, petitions are a last source of relief. They're the people's direct line to the executive power. And the governor has the sole authority to pardon, remit fines, or commute sentences. Um, and sometimes we get a lot of pardons, and sometimes he will cite a specific legal issue. And sometimes he'll even, I think we've got one where he mentions in light of the good events yesterday, he's in a good mood and he pardons someone. So sometimes there's no reason, but more frequently we just get the one word that says issue. So we don't know what's going on, what's playing into his decision-making process. Um, and it's not uncommon for people involved in the case to sign petitions, which is interesting. Um, very often we see jury members, members of the jury will all sign onto a petition. They will convict and then immediately sign a petition for a pardon saying basically the law tied our hands on this, but we don't agree with our own decision. And Gosh, that seems so wrong. 
Well, <laughs> they are. They're following as they understand it. They're following the letter of the law, yeah. even though in spirit they may not agree. So we get that a lot. Members of the jury, we the undersigned members of the jury. So they're very Civil War Kentuckians are very familiar with petitioning the governor, and they're exercising that power. So who in this situation is petitioning the governor? Is it Caroline? Uh, I think her petitions are. She has a petition, and then there's a minister, and they're fairly lengthy. They've got. I think some of the jury members are signing off on hers. So she and keep in mind too that this is a petition issued in her name and signed with her mark, but she's illiterate. Uh, so, so whether this is her voice or not is, is going to be iffy. And petitions are often backed with uh, very prominent citizens who the governor knows. This is a very personal process. Um, and, and something we see in these petitions on the aggregate uh, is you can use them to understand who power brokers are in local communities. Um, so that, that wealthy citizen, uh, the, the Commonwealth attorney, uh, the member of the legislature, uh, somebody is is the man that you need to get to sign your petition to, to make this happen. And the, the, the amazing part about Caroline's story is looking at the citizens of Louisville that she gets to write on her behalf, she gets that elite support, uh, which is very tough to interpret one way or the other. Where is Caroline right, right now? Because she is being an activist for her own life, but isn't she being held She's in somewhere? Jail. She's in jail. So how is she getting this petition circulated? There are people acting on her behalf, like they're the prominent minister is, I'm assuming is maybe her minister is connected with her, maybe getting her placed in the household and is acting on her behalf. So that's actually much more convenient because, you know, she's a black woman. She's not necessarily going to get these power brokers, as you say, to sign this. But if she gives it to the town minister, the town minister knows everyone and he can convince people yes. uh, to get this, this petition signed. So who are these governors? Uh, who are making these decisions, who are seeing this petition. And I say governors, plural. Why is that? Uh, because this transpires over many years. Uh, we have two governors that this impacts and impacts the uh, individual governors who impact this case. The first being James F. Robinson, who comes to power uh, in August of 1862 by legislative coup, more or less. Uh, and then Thomas Bramlett, who comes to power by election, also an election that is couched in questionable activities uh, in uh, 1863. Uh, and we're looking at both of these governors who are very similar in their outlook as far as, uh, as politics go. They're both pro-slavery. Uh, they're both pro-union. Uh, they're both former Whigs. Uh, and... Uh, they both have interests in slavery, whether it be through slave owning, uh, through their legal practices, uh, or through their political ambitions, which is to maintain slavery as it was prior to the war, uh, protected by the national constitution and protected by the state constitution. So they're looking to protect uh, and they're looking to continue to see Kentucky profit from that slave labor. So let's look at each of the individual governors. So James Robinson first. So he serves for about a year, uh, but he sets the tone for conservative unionists' uh, response to the Emancipation Proclamation, the preliminary and the actual emancipation that occurs during his tenure. And although that did not apply to Kentucky, it shook white slave-owning Kentuckians uh, to the core. Uh, it signaled the beginning of the end of slavery in Kentucky. Uh, and we have this, this effort, every effort that Robinson makes is to uphold slavery uh, he, he talks repeatedly about receiving compensation for slaves 
uh, we call them emancipation, in 62, 63, and even in 65 when slavery is done, the nail has been been nailed into the been hammered into the coffin. He is still talking about getting compensated for uh, Kentuckians compensated for their loss of slaves, um, and this in comparison to another case he when he was uh, practicing law in Scott County in Georgetown, Kentucky, um, he actually defends a slave uh, in the in 1854, and the slave is eventually convicted and uh, sentenced to a life in the penitentiary. Uh, in 1862, uh, he is also still involved with this same, same slave, Jordan, uh, who is convicted uh, of a murder. Uh, and he is, signs a pardon uh, document or a petition, he and the judge who tried the case, on behalf of the slave. Uh, and this is part of a larger legal issue because there's actually legislation that pa- that's passed in April of 62, or in March of 62, uh, that says uh, gives the governor the right to sell slaves who are in the state penitentiary back into slavery, and that the state can actually profit from the sale of the slaves back into slavery. Uh, Robinson actually writes the petition along with the judge to have this slave Jordan pardoned, uh, and when the pardon is granted, the governor uh, sells Jordan back into slavery. Uh, so we see a very different side of uh, Governor Robinson here, who is actually defending a slave. Uh, but at the same time, uh, uh, benefiting the state of Kentucky and selling that slave back into slavery again. And we also have Thomas Bramlett, who comes to power and is elected in 1863. He oversees really that transition of Kentucky from a slaveholding society into a post-slaveholding uh, society, uh, which ultimately ends uh, with the 13th Amendment in December of 1865. He, and during his administration, he leads the charge against African-American enlistment in Kentucky. And also in 1865, uh, a year later, seeks to have Kentucky credited for the slaves who are being enlisted in the army. And he does this not because of he wants slavery to end. He wants to get credited for the African-Americans, the former slaves, so that white individuals do not have to sign up and meet that quota that is, Kentucky is responsible for. Uh, he's firmly opposed to the extension of citizen ri- citizenship rights, uh, civil rights uh, to all African Americans in Kentucky. And uh, he owned slaves. He hired slaves out actually to the state arsenal and profited from Kentucky paying his slave hiring fees. His slaves eventually enlist against his will, and he seeks after war to get compensated for those two slaves who enlisted in the army. So he is firmly against slavery, but also has to agree with Lincoln and see Lincoln after Lincoln is assassinated that he was actually right in seeking emancipation in Kentucky. That he was right in doing so, and he has to usher the Kentucky slaveholding society into that post-slaveholding society. It's a very racially violent society after after the end of slavery in Kentucky, and that plays out over decades and centuries of not to come. Uh, but he is also in that same boat. We see Bramlett as uh, protecting slavery, but having to to be the governor who pushes Kentuckians in a new directions. So. I don't. In my opinion, it looks like Caroline's like in some serious danger here. She's in a courtroom where the odds are against her. The judges are certainly going to, you know, say, "Oh, well, she's a slave. She doesn't really maybe matter all that much as maybe a white person who would be in my courtroom." And yet he pardons her. How does that happen? And what happens to her when she's pardoned? You know, this gets back to something Whitney mentioned about the petitioning process. Um, and, and those interesting cases, like in Caroline's case, where we see the jury petition the governor 
to reverse the verdict that they rendered. Now, in Caroline's case, this is because new evidence gets presented to the jury, and they say that if they had known what they knew from Josephine Lynch um, about how much poison Willis Levy had spread about the yard, uh, then they, they would not have convicted. But we often see jurors writing in uh, asking to overturn uh, their own verdicts minutes after they get them, presumably. Um, and I think the governors are in a, an interesting perspective, particularly in cases uh, that that involve slavery, right? Because while slavery is uh, an economic institution where, where people are property, while slavery is a legal institution where uh, where slaves face the full weight uh, of of the law, um, it's also a personal institution uh, where where there are there are human beings acting on both sides uh, of the master slave divide, and and so the governors have to. Uh, maintain this peculiar balance in society and make sure that that even if the law doesn't deliver it that justice gets served and that's not justice in in sort of a, an, an objective uh, you know blindfolded woman with scales sense but justice in the sense of a community uh, retaining stability uh, as defined by its white leadership um, and uh, and so the governor is going to very much rely on these petitions to give him a sense of uh, of what the community wants and what verdict the community needs uh, to become whole again uh, after after any sort of situation. So where does she go? What happens? We don't know. Uh, which is <laughs> all of this. All of this. It's like the end of the whole, film where yeah. you find out whether you know someone are they free or are they not and what happens to them and it just goes black. It's the end of the Sopranos. It's the end of the Sopranos, right? <laughs> and so you're telling me that we don't know what happens. We don't know. So oh. she's pardoned, and we can live in a world where we feel good about social justice and say she's pardoned. It's 1864 Kentucky. Emancipation is coming. She will get to enjoy her freedom. And that's but we don't go. actually know that. Oh. Um, and we. <laughs> I want her to. I want to know that she goes north and that she's free and that she's. You know, no more trouble. Uh, we all do, right? Um, we don't know. This is a problem of doing all history, but particularly doing history of African Americans and of African American women who were not valued. Archives are only as good as the people who are doing the collecting. And so when you're building archives in Kentucky in the early 20th century, you're most often building on Confederate um, lost cause ideology, on the families of former slave owners, on white men. And so we don't have that story. The only reason we have the story at all is because she was petitioning. We can't find it in the circuit court records. There are no, we don't know. And to Mandy's point, and more specifically to your reaction when you found out that we don't actually know that Caroline rides off into the sunset, uh, I'll play the cynic in the recording studio, we have this inclination to read the story backwards and we assume that because all of these social injustices have been heaped upon Caroline and that she sort of, you know, there's that quote in Shawshank Redemption, he crawls through the river of filth and comes out clean on the other side. And we want this story to end so badly with her coming out clean on the other side. It's possible, it's not likely, it's possible she actually was the murderer all along. We honestly will never know. One word response. You're the prosecutor. You've got the evidence in front of you. Did she do it? Innocent.
Patrick? No. <laughs> <laughs> that was a no, but a sigh. And, uh, I'm not going to commit to no, but most likely no. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm on Team Innocent, so. Uh, <laughs> and I'm Team Justice for Blanche. So. And the cynic. You know, I if I'd been her attorney, I think I would have had her plead to a lesser charge. <laughs> I'll, I'll let you decode what that means. But then my response. I, I just gonna say, I mean, this is what this project is about, though. I mean, it's about bringing these new historical actors into dialogue, being able to extract stories of, of poor white people, of African Americans, of slaves, of the. Uh, Doing social history—that's what we're doing here. And it's yes, it's a product a project about the governors, but it's really about all those other names that we really want to learn more about and have others do research to learn more about history. I see. That's a good point too. Where do we go from here with the story? We've got this really wonderful story, but in the end, uh, this is hundred—you know, hundred fifty some odd years ago. Why does this matter? Where do we go from here? Well, we have a few places we go from here, and we've, we've hopefully got you covered on all of those avenues. At this point, it, it's probably futile for me to sit here and tell you Caroline's story is obviously very complicated. You know, we're dealing with this matrix of questions about her racial identity, about geography, Kentucky specifically, but also the South. We've got conflicting interpretations of the law. We've got local, state, and federal officials all arguing about what the same words on the same pages actually mean and then we have this struggle for authority authority between civil government and the military the union is still waging a war in the midst of this we sort of pull ourselves into the courtroom and into caroline's prison cell and we get lost in this story and sometimes we forget what's actually going on around her she arrived in kentucky in the first place because she came with a union army that's chasing a confederate army uh, so this is not happening in a vacuum and as Tony alluded to earlier, this is all part of the fallout of slavery dying its slow death. You know, Willis Levy didn't know what a poor investment his slaves were going to be at the time he purchased them. Uh, but in hindsight, we do know. I mean, at this point in the war, slavery is dying. If you can present Caroline's story in the right format, though, this is a really good opportunity to show students sort of the raw stuff of history. You know, to most students, history is battle cry of freedom or Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, it's the book that you put in front of them. Caroline's story and the documents associated with it give us a chance to show students what you start with before you get that book or before you get that document reader. And it's a really good opportunity to also remind them these people aren't just words on a page. They have thoughts and emotions and problems. They're real human beings with faces and feelings and minds just like we are today. Uh, you can get that from just reading the documents and hopefully from reading the blog series. But just to drive that point home, we've created this classroom experience. Uh, it goes along with the Caroline Chronicles, and it does put students directly uh, in front of those primary documents, the same ones we use to write the blog. Uh, it comes with a very manageable writing assignment that forces students not just to pick one side or the other and argue for it, but to actually find the legal merit in both sides, to set their emotional uh, attachment to one verdict or the other aside and act as the prosecution and the defense, because that really shows, as we all alluded to when you just went around the room, there is no right answer to this. We can only work with the documents we're given. The most exciting part, I think, about this classroom experience is a 50 minute or roughly an hour 
an in-class simulation where students prepare to debate whether or not Caroline will be granted this pardon, and then they actually run a mock trial and convince a jury of their peers one way or the other, and then that jury decides. Uh, and the argument making isn't the only valuable part of that. The students who made the arguments and lose also have to learn to deal with the fact that someone lost in this trial. Again, these are real people and real processes. So we're really trying to make this uh, accessible to the classroom at all levels, particularly right now at the college level. Definitely check out the Civil War Governor's website. You can find all of the Caroline Chronicles blog entries there. Uh, there's a contact form where you can get in touch with us about adopting the classroom simulation and those materials in your own classroom to do with your own students. And we're also just happy to answer any questions. We've had a lot of positive feedback from the blog uh, and we're happy to continue giving that. And we're happy to talk about potentially uh, getting this into your classroom and letting you bang your head against the wall the same way we've been doing, trying to figure out just what in the world was going on in Kentucky in 1862. I want to thank everyone involved on this project particularly those of the Kentucky Historical Society. They are doing some really great work over there. You should really check it out. They've got a whole website with projects, notes, documents, pictures, work pages, worksheets, all of this creative material that you can use in the classroom or just for fun at home because you want to know more about Caroline too, I'm sure. Go to civilwargovernors.org. It's civilwargovernors, all one word, .org. I want to thank executive producer Dara Vance, Patrick Lewis, Tony Curtis, Matthew Holbert, Whitney Smith, Amanda Higgins, and of course, you for listening. We'll see you again soon.